Don't miss the latest stories and analysis about the future of education from the ReLearning Project. Sign up for the weekly newsletter at chronicle.com relearning. Think back to the early days of MOOCs. Professors from Stanford and Harvard and other places were suddenly teaching really big classes for free. Hundreds of thousands of students at once were in these things. It was an unprecedented giveaway of what had traditionally been the most expensive education in the world. Back then, I met several students who were binging on these courses the way you might binge watch a season of your favorite show on Netflix. They took as many as they possibly could, powering through, taking as many as 30 courses in a year. When I asked why they were in such a hurry, the most popular reason was they thought it was all too good to last. As one of these binging students told me, I'm just afraid this whole thing might end soon. I mean, surely universities would change their mind about this or the startups working with colleges might lock things up. Fast forward to last month when Coursera did something that stirred up all these concerns again. On June 30th, the company deleted hundreds of its earliest courses as part of a shift to a new software platform. Reaction, as you might expect, was negative on social media and blogs. One programmer called it cultural vandalism. To be fair, some of these courses will actually be brought back on the new platform. For the company, the reason to upgrade was a philosophical shift to offering courses that start on demand rather than just once or twice a year as their early courses did. Coursera said it found that completion rates were just better when people could start at their own convenience. But the episode did raise ongoing issues about the future of MOOCs. Will these free courses really stick around? And do MOOCs have staying power? Hello and welcome to the Chronicle of Higher Education's Relearning Podcast. I'm Jeff Young, and I recently had the chance to talk with Daphne Kohler, a co-founder of Coursera, about these issues. We sat down at the EdTechX Europe conference in London. First, a quick program note. This is a special bonus installment of our podcast, since we're on summer break between seasons. We'll be back on a more regular schedule starting in the fall. For now, here's the conversation with Daphne Kohler. Well, Daphne, thank you for for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. Obviously, MOOCs are a different conversation today than they were a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my I'm curious. You know, some people out there are sort of like, "See, I told you so." The hype wasn't as big. Now, I know you and I, you were never the one saying a lot of the hype anyway. That's so, right. So, um, but there still is this perception out there. I guess, how would you describe the narrative now? Like, what what are MOOCs today, and, mm-hmm. and where are they heading? What's What's the arc of like maybe like what's been learned from the early days and where things are going? I found the hype in the early days to be somewhat laughable and, and as well as the trough that came afterwards. It was the first year was, oh, MOOCs are going to put universities out of business, which we never aimed for nor endorsed. And then 12 months later, it's like, universities are still around. You fail. Okay. Both of these were ridiculous points of view. I think what we're seeing right now is that what we're doing is providing access to an amazing educational experience to a lot of people who for diverse reasons don't have the opportunity to benefit from it. And that includes people in developing countries who might not have a well-established educational system, but also includes people like you and me who want to learn something new or need to learn something new because the skills that we need for our job have changed and we're not gonna get a chance to go back to school. So I have to ask, there was something I just saw in the last couple days about um, some a little bit of grumbling about a change that Coursera is making about mm-hmm. some of the old original MOOCs, a, a large number, I think, of courses that are being taken down or the because they were, you guys are sh- making a change to the platform. Is mm-hmm. this is this right? And I guess, 
What do you? What is your response to people who are sort of complaining that this, you know, this free resource that was there for a long time is going away? Well, first of all, there is a misunderstanding here. A lot of these courses will be migrated to the new platform. They just haven't been yet, um, partly because there's some changes that need to be made to the format to make them live on the new platform. But we're really excited about the new platform because unlike the old one where the courses were only live once or twice a year, here the courses are live all the time. So you can start the class pretty much every two weeks there's a new cohort launching. So that's why we made that change. So it's basically going to... So I know what you mean about some of the courses, they would be sort of online sometimes and not online other times effectively because if it wasn't going, then you couldn't look at it. And now all courses are going to be going pretty much all the time. So yes, there's a a few hundred courses that we haven't migrated yet. Most of those, not all of them, but most of them will be migrated soon. Most, okay. Well, some of them are obsolete. So for instance, if you taught a technology or a biology class three years ago, Things have changed, and if the professor hasn't had the time to update it, you probably don't want it still up there. Um, so there are some courses that will go away, but most of them will, will be migrated to the new platform. Yeah, I guess it's interesting. It's just been a long, you know, you've been around long enough that these are, the, these are some of the interesting issues that end up coming on, is mm-hmm. like archiving. What is the appropriate role for the university and for Coursera mm-hmm. to, to play in kind of keeping things, and when do you refresh? Um, are those things that, I mean, are, are there, is there a commitment um, or do you, do you find yourself now thinking to make it more clear to people about what those, what the guidelines are for you about when do you, mm-hmm. how long you keep something up and when you refresh it or take it down? Well, I mean, I think that's obviously largely up to the instructor. You can't force somebody to update a course unless they want to, in the same way they can't force someone to update a textbook unless they want to. So it's very similar in that respect. For courses that are very high demand and where we um, actively solicit it from the university, that we provide resources to support in the creation, we do try and establish expectations on a reasonably frequent update schedule with the instructor. Although, again, if they say, no, I can't do it, there's still nothing you can do. What do you see as, for Coursera as the biggest challenge now, right? You've probably solved some and, you know, mm-hmm. new ones crop up. What is, what is on your mind these days? So I think there's still an awareness challenge. Uh, even today, there was a Pew Center um, study that shows I think that only 20% of Americans are aware of, of, of professional Americans. So people who would be in our target demographic, mm-hmm. um, only 20% are aware of MOOCs. So mm-hmm. um, I guess the other 80% don't read the Chronicle of Higher Ed or the New York oh. Times or the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. So um, I think it's how do you get to those people? And even more so, how do you get get to those people in countries outside of the United States where awareness is even lower to let them know that this, uh, you know, that this opportunity exists for them. Well, and I guess that is a question because, I mean, it's, it's easy. I certainly, obviously, like people to read us and read mm-hmm. these other esteemed publications, but, I mean, there's other things, ways to do it, like have you done, like, bus ads or are you thinking of other ways to, to get at where mm-hmm. people are definitely not, you know, in a, in a different, that have different media habits um, and... And you may not even know, how do you kind of go around ways to reach people who may benefit from MOOCs but not know about them? You know, that's a really great question. And we now, um, you know, only about a year and a half ago, we finally hired a marketing person who's thinking (laughs) about these full time. We didn't have one in the early days. Uh, But we have some partnerships that I think are really exciting. So, for instance, the one with Times Internet of India, they do billboards and ads in traditional newspapers, including newspapers that are typical demographic hasn't been reading and so this was reach out into a whole new demographic and so I think that's 
One Direction, we're doing partnerships with governments on workforce development. Uh, we found the ones that we've had, for instance, in Singapore to be hugely impactful, both um, on the learners, but also on the, on the workforce development needs in the country. So I think that those are new channels that we're exploring to reach new populations. There's been a lot of talk about MOOCs as an experiment because you have these large student populations mm-hmm. that have never been yep. gathered before. I mean, at this point now, there's been a few years, what's the, what's the most interesting or important thing you've learned um, from the MOOCs that have been, that have been done? Um, I think what we learned is the extent to which uh, once you have learners or students who know their own mind, what they're looking for is so very different than the kind of experience that we've been providing on campus. Um, they're looking for shorter, more to-the-point modules of knowledge. They're looking for things that have direct relevance to problems that they're trying to solve. Um, and I think one of the transformations that we see when talking to instructors is first the realization that you can't teach your MOOC students the same way you teach your on-campus students because your MOOC students are going to just walk away and not complete the course. And then they come to a point of view, it's like, okay, my on-campus students are different from my MOOC students. The next stage of their evolution is like, no, they're not actually different. It's just that the MOOC students have the option to walk away, whereas your on-campus students don't. And maybe what we should be providing to our on-campus students is actually more like what we're providing to our MOOC students. That's really interesting. And do you, do you find that's bleeding back into the college Absolutely. courses? And in fact, I think that we're catalyzing an important transformation. There has long been this uh, narrative around how universities are not providing the skills that employers feel they need in their incoming employees. But that communication channel has been hard to develop. I mean, how do you as a university professor, learn what it is that industry really needs. Well, interestingly, by teaching the MOOC, you actually learn what people who are actively employed are looking for as part of their education. And we also create direct relationships between top universities and top employers. So you now have that feedback loop that can help us make university teaching more relevant. One of the curious things um, is, you know, you've had uh, a growth of courses. Yeah. A lot of universities have joined. And, yeah. Um, how many partners do you have now? 145. Exactly. There's a lot of universities. Teaching and, in 10 different languages, which is pretty cool. And have any left that started? Or is it the people, and are people building more courses? I guess there's a question I have is a, about whether, what the, what the curve is. Are, are people that did a few courses to start off, is that, have they learned that they're largely happy with that amount and keep that? Or the back, you know, like growing yeah. or shrinking or, or keeping the same. What is the, what is the experience of your partners? So it varies. Um, most partners have produced a steady stream of courses that um, is a, you know, maybe three, four, five new ones every year where an instructor kind of raises his or her hand and is excited about mm-hmm. the reach that this kind, this kind of opportunity gives them. Uh, but we have a number of partners. I would say around. 20 to 30 that have really embraced this um, deeply and are now viewing this as a huge distribution channel for them in a variety of different ways, whether it's to attract new students, whether it's as a 
revenue generator, whether it's as part of the online degrees that we've started to offer, and those are the ones that are really prolific contributors, and some of those are U.S. institutions, like, you know, UPenn is an example, Michigan, University of Illinois, um, Stanford, um, but there's also others, like UNAM in Mexico, or EPFL in Switzerland, or University of London right here in the U.K., are all um, incredibly prolific producers of MOOCs and very high quality. And one of the things, if you have a minute, is I, I think it's your own story. Are you surprised sometimes you were, you were obviously an accomplished researcher mm -hmm. before this your interest in education technology happened mm -hmm. at all, or your involvement in it, and um, you know had won a MacArthur grant for your AI yes. research. But do you, do you ever kind of look up and be like, how did I end up doing this? Or like, are there? Um, uh, I guess, how do you feel about you know being this, focusing on this now compared to the work you've done before? Or is it all? Yeah. yeah, you know, especially in the early days, um, it felt somewhat surreal. People used to ask me, how are you feeling about your new life? And I used to say that it feels like the main character in the movie being John Malkovich. It's like, I'm in someone else's life. It's not my life, but it's kind of cool, so I'm going along with it. Um, it's a very different life, but it has very different opportunities for impact. And so I'm glad that I was able to play this role in, in catalyzing what I think is a huge transformation in education. Yeah, and you didn't uh, you didn't go back to Stanford, which I know at the beginning it was like take a leave from Stanford, go yeah. start this, maybe it'll work out. Um, now you're you're, uh, you're doing this. Do you ever think that in the future you'll be back to doing research, or is it not a thing you're thinking about right now? Well, you know, I think one of the things I learned through my Coursera journey is that you never know what the future might bring. If you'd asked me five years ago, would I be, which is just before Coursera started, would I be doing this? It's like. Uh, no, of course not. I'm, I'm a Stanford professor. So, I mean, you don't know what the future brings. Well, great. Well, thanks again for talking with us today. Great. I really Thank appreciate you. catching Thanks, Jeff. Good to see you again. <laughs> this has been the ReLearning Podcast. It's part of the Chronicle of Higher Education's coverage of innovation at colleges. And you can sign up for the free newsletter at chronicle.com relearning. If this is the first time you're tuning in, I invite you to check out the 10 episodes we did in our first season, which includes chats with Sal Khan, Carol Dweck, and Tyler Cowan, among others. If you like this podcast, subscribe on iTunes or your podcaster of choice, and take a moment to give us a rating. Today's show was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Our theme music was by Jason Cadell. We'll be back in the fall with more conversations about the new learning landscape.